Hello, it's the Bonnie and Ann Book Club or Ann and Bonnie Book Club. Here we are. We're, we haven't been on for a while, but uh, we intend to do better, don't we? We Ann? keep reading. We so keep we'll reading. So we want to share with you today a book called To Sleep with the Angels, The Story of a Fire. And the authors are David Cullen and John Keister. I believe that's how he pronounces his name. I found this book to be very tragic, and yet out of the ashes, as we will describe, a lot of changes were made for the better. So I think um, we want, really wanted to do this on the anniversary of the Our Lady of the Angels fire. Here we are to we are tell you with <laughs> history, Chicago history. So, Anne, what did you think about this book? Bonnie, this was probably the most heart-wrenching book I have ever read. Um, growing up in Chicago, a as I did, um, I knew about this fire. I remember seeing it on the news um, when I was a freshman in high school, the day that it happened. But, of course, you know, things kind of go out of your mind and out of the public's awareness, and so we, um, you know, don't don't think about these things that so shaped a whole neighborhood and in fact a whole city and beyond. Uh, the 1st of December 1958 when the fire broke out at Our Lady of the Angels School, Catholic school. It was a great big school, one of the biggest in the Archdiocese in the days when classrooms had 50, 60, 65, 70 kids in a classroom with one sister and one nun um, handling all those those kids and managing uh, everything <laughs> to do with with educating those kids uh, but that day was just so incredibly tragic um, it was practically the end of the day everything that could have gone wrong did so true and I too remember the fire and uh, as Anne said you know it kind of fades a little bit from your mind, but I remember very clearly because I think I, I think I was in my first year of nursing at St. Joe's in the city. And uh, I thought, oh my goodness, I wonder how a hospital could ever handle all those victims that came in. Oh and they yeah, were I mean you as a, as a nursing um, student or new nurse would be really thinking about that aspect of, of handling these kids who were s burned or are uh, severely injured from from um, smoke inhalation or from jumping out of the fire. Of course, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We are. With the <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently, the fire started in a sort of a garbage bin in the basement, and it smoldered uh, for probably 20 to 30 minutes before anybody knew that there was a fire. And letting a fire get that far ahead of you is, uh, as the firemen in the, who are interviewed in the book will explain, it's um, almost impossible to beat it back after it gets a head start. And unfortunately, although there were fire regulations requiring sprinklers and requiring fire doors, they didn't require schools or any other building that was built prior to the passage of that law I believe the law was 1949. Mm -hmm. If the school was uh, was built 
prior to that, they were grandfathered in and they didn't have to comply with those safety regulations. That was, you know, mistake number one probably or certainly way up there at the top. So with nothing to, to keep that fire from getting beyond the basement stairway, it, the, the stairwell acted like a chimney and that smoke and fire went up to the second floor rapidly. And I think uh, there were some very stern regulations because as we mentioned before, the school was overcrowded and there was one nun in every classroom or a lay teacher. They were mostly nuns and they were BVMs, I believe. Uh, yeah, I uh, think you're right. Right, BVMs, and they were strict disciplinarians. But when it came to the fire, they only had the permission of the principal who would sound the alarm and evacuate the building. And because of the code that they were grandfathered in, there was no outside uh, fire alarm connected to the fire station. It was a block and a half away. And so the only way that they found out about this fire was from parents who saw the building on fire and rushed to the rushed immediately to the to the school to save mm -hmm. their kids. But those well, and the janitor who finally spotted the smoke ran to the rectory to tell the receptionist there to call the fire department. She gave the fire department the address of the parish. Right. So when instead of the school, which was on a different street around the corner. So when the fire department finally does arrive, they're on the wrong street and they have to get around to the other street. There was a, a big gate uh, closing off yeah. the access to get to the side of the building that was locked. They had to bar you know, barrel that down uh, uh, to get in in order to get their ladders and their hoses into some place that could be useful. Like I say, just everything that could delay another minute and, and every, every second counts when you're trying to, to get to a fire. And, and another problem was that the fire alarm for the school was placed at about seven feet or six feet on the wall and the children couldn't reach it to pull the alarm when they, no. when they yeah. smelled the smoke, which is what most of them smelled immediately was, was the smoke. They didn't realize that there was a fire. And the other delay was that parents who saw their kids, you know, trying to get out were putting up homemade ladders which didn't reach the windows. Which didn't and reach, the yeah. window sills in the classroom on the second floor were higher than the fourth graders could even climb yeah, some onto. Some of those kids couldn't, even if they wanted to jump out, which of course in itself was a huge danger, um, many of them couldn't reach that level in order to do that. I think one of the saddest accounts I heard was of a dad who brought his ladder over. His ladder was tall enough and he, you know he lived I think practically next door to the school. He put a ladder against the building and began to help children get down from one of those second floor classrooms. He looks over and sees his own son at the next right. window 
and his son sees him and is calling to him, Daddy, come, you know, save me, get me out of here. And the, the, he's telling his son, don't jump, I'm coming, I'm coming. And then he sees his son, like, just pulled back into the fire by the force of that fire. And the boy didn't survive. It, it was just so tragic uh, and... and um, heart-wrenching that you had to take breaks reading this book. You did. I I read the book, half of the book, and I had to stop for a while. And then I went back and read the other half, and then I read the second half, which goes into everything that could go wrong, did go wrong. Uh, But the visuals of the first half of the book of those children hanging out the window, yelling for their parents, their parents, many of them at the bottom uh, uh, of the school, looking for their children or looking up and seeing their children hanging uh, by their fingernails, really, on window ledges or climbing over other children who had become unconscious because of smoke inhalation. and, uh, And another one of the delays was that God loved them, the nuns, rather than evacuating because the mother superior or the principal was actually substitute teaching. So she did not hear about the problems. She wasn't in her office. It wasn't in her office to even, uh, you know, accommodate any kind of of, uh, bringing the kids out uh, of the school. And the first fire uh, response was a hook and ladder and their chief job is not rescue they are not a rescue their chief job is to get water on the fire right away so there was a little bit and thank god for that battalion chief because he recognized immediately the gravity of the situation Kids were jumping out the second floor window onto pay, onto the cement. The fire department was trying to break their falls. Parents were trying to break the fall. Kids were jumping out. They didn't know. They were all screaming and yelling at the window for somebody to save them. And he he immediately pulled a five alarm fire without permission. Yeah. Getting, getting tons more equipment there to do what they right. could do. Right. But had he not done that, the, the, there would have been far more fatalities, yeah. I think. And I thought the heroism of, of the priests that were assigned to that parish, especially uh, one particular that was home with the flu or something, and he took a nap in the rectory, and then he heard uh, the, all the commotion outside, and somebody was yelling. Uh, he heard the kids yelling, save me, save me. And he was able to get in and access that stairwell yeah. and get kids down. I mean, he and down. that janitor saved uh, a whole classroom full of kids and more. They just kept going back and back. going back as long as they could to get some of those kids out. Um, and you know, many, many of the children, I mean, they all, those who evacuated, of course, came with no coats on, and it was cold. It was December. It was a very, very cold day. Um, so neighbors took those kids in. Right. 
which uh, which was wonderful, but also added to the chaos of parents who didn't know where their children somewhere hope they were hoping their children were somewhere with a neighbor and not a victim of the fire right and I remember reading that uh, a woman who had a younger child at home and ran a candy store and was all ready for the kids to come in after school to buy their penny candy yeah. uh, a, a, a reporter ran to her and said uh, can I use your phone? Can I use your phone? There's The school's on fire. And she was a single, home alone, didn't know, he didn't identify himself. She was. She just simply said, I don't have a phone. Yeah, yeah. being and afraid to, to She was afraid, yeah. right. And so, again, precious minutes were, were lost. Yeah. And I think uh, the cook at the uh, rectory uh, was an Irish, an older Irish lady, and she was in the middle of making something for the priest. And I think she, she might have delayed making a call. Yeah, thinking, no one is no, no one nobody knows for knows. sure because of, at the the inquest, there's a discrepancy between what time the janitor reported that right. he found the fire, what time the call was made to the fire department. There are some things, of course, you'll never know the answers to, and people are desperate to know what really happened, especially those who lost somebody. There were a few families who lost two children. Yes, and, yes. Uh, you know, if you go over to that parish now, there's a monument that was made many years afterward to those uh, victims of the fire with every name, 95 children mm -hmm. and three, three nuns. Uh, or is, it, is that right, 95 children, children and three nuns? Mm -hmm. uh, it might have been 92 children and three, three nuns. nuns. I 95. think that's what it was. 95 in total who died uh, on that day. And the, the hospital, the closest hospital where they took most of the victims was uh, just a community hospital. Uh, would never, under ordinary circumstances, have been expected to handle the, uh, the kind of trauma, the number of victims that they had to, and they they just did a remarkable job, just they, remarkable. They did, and the chaos of, uh, uh, you know, l when the ambulances did come, they loaded kids in, but some uh, policemen and uh, neighbors had already taken the kids to the hospital. To the hospital, yeah. So that, too, uh, delayed identification and knowledge of where the child could come. And I remember one part of the story of the young boy who, who jumped out the window and landed, and then he felt dizzy, and he, he st uh, they moved him up against the wall of, uh, I think, the candy store. And then he decided he'd run home. He felt well enough to get up and run home, and his mother said, why is your coat smelling of smoke? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what are what has happened? And he said, Mom, the school's on fire. And at first she didn't believe yeah, him. Yeah, at first she did. thought, I guess yeah. he's got to be making that yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> right. She thought he had been somewhere where he shouldn't have been. And another tragedy is that some of the nuns who were on the second floor who died, uh, took the time for the children to pray uh, it, it, rather than to try to get out. They, yeah. they went to the door, and it was, the room filled with smoke, and it was hot. 
but they thought that if they said a prayer and one of them said a rosary, yeah. and I guess some of the bodies they found were gathered around that nun, around you know, nun, yeah. uh, rather than trying to escape. So, Of course, the only escape, because the, the hallway was so blackened with smoke, mm -hmm. you could not get out. You could not see where you were going. And their only... The only escape route was out the windows, which was also very dangerous. But ultimately, a lot of kids did get out that right. way. You know, one of the other things that, that makes this story so riveting is giving the background of the city of Chicago at the time, the neighborhood at the time, and how cohesive Chicago's neighborhoods were in the 1950s. Life revolved around your parish. And so people who lived in that neighborhood, for the most part, belonged to Our Lady of the Angels Parish. The children went to Our Lady of the Angels School. Catholic schools were affordable in those days because we had the nuns teaching. So you had most of the families involved in that school. And many of the firemen were also members of the parish. And the policemen who you know, were at the local... Um, a police station and assigned to the to come over there uh, so they knew each other they they knew these kids the firemen knew the kids they were they were rescuing because they were all part of the neighborhood yeah and and I think another very tragic thing is that after the fire and after the aftermath when you know so many things have changed now with medicine and how we treat trauma uh, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome was not even on the books then. No. And firemen did that not. that didn't mean it didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and it, not to talk about something was the rule of thumb. And so many of these victims were uh, children robbed of their childhood, robbed of their adolescence, and really robbed in many ways of their adulthood and their response to life. Tragic. I mean, yeah. really, it's just, uh, this book I think should be must reading. I really do. I think, uh, you know, understanding uh, how the archdiocese responded was very interesting. And yeah. uh, well, the you know, the, the um the priest who was superintendent of the schools at the time, the book comments that he was better known for his golf game than his administrative skills, and that if the fire department did report that a school uh, had some, you know, some uh, thing that needed to be corrected for fire safety, the the superintendent didn't follow up with it. He might pass the word on to the pastor and then not follow up to see if they fixed it or could afford to fix it or whatever um, might be needed. And of course the business of being grandfathered in anyway, I mean, these, they, these kinds of things wouldn't be allowed to happen now. But many people didn't want to give the church a bad name, so they didn't want to say anything negative about the way the diocese handled the fire or the you know, maintenance of the buildings or anything like that. Um, they were hesitant also to to really charge anybody when they, they're pretty sure they know it was started by a kid in the neighborhood who had once been a student there. They couldn't prove it definitively and um, pretty much didn't even try to. They just 
because he was an uh, underage kid, just let it go. Um, whether he ever started other fires, because he had started several. Oh, he had. This young man had started mm-hmm. several fires, which is the reason they were looking at him as a possible um, perpetrator of this one. And it was but interesting when they got to settlements, uh, you know, for, uh, for injury and uh, the coroner's inquest, uh, the coroner, uh, it, you know, this was in the days of Mayor Daly, senior, yeah. senior Mayor Daly, uh, who really a Bridgeport native and uh, uh, a devout Catholic, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. And uh, but a, a consummate politician mm-hmm. also, as was Cardinal Meyer, yeah. who was the uh, uh, cardinal. Uh, when the fire originated and uh, there you know the judge was told don't make it too bad because the archdiocese doesn't want to go bankrupt uh, on settlements with these these people uh, this these families that uh, lost their one or two children in the fire and really probably traumatized everybody in that school to some degree. Oh, sure. I mean, you can imagine if you had a sibling who died in the fire, what what kind of pressure is on you now and how guilty the survivor would feel? And yet, like you said, the code of silence, the, 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 the prevailing thinking was, don't think about it, don't talk about it, it'll go away. Well, it, of course it doesn't go away. And people lived with this sadness for the rest of their lives. Even those who were, you know, survived and got married and had families, pretty much everyone moved away from the neighborhood because the sense of sadness and tragedy was so pervasive they couldn't stay. And the neighborhood was destroyed. So true. And uh, I I think, you know, on a positive side, uh, I think the lessons learned were an improved fire response improve schooling absolutely you know mandatory sprinklers and yeah. buildings of concrete and steel rather than wood which yeah, is what our lady of the angels yeah. was yeah. all wooden uh and uh it it instituted trauma responses in hospitals and it changed the whole way that burns are treated uh you know and Actually, uh, it changed. It changed everything. It mm-hmm. really that fire changed our outlook at people being able to express their upset and sorrow and and anger and what happened. Because before you didn't talk about it, and then it wasn't there. Yeah, it expressed uh, an increase in children's being safe. You know, would that they would be safe in this day and age, huh? And yeah, there are yeah. a lot of parallels uh, to the yeah. in this book to the right to life movement. Really, there are. Uh, I thought there were also parallels to our current response to the COVID pandemic. Absolutely, where children are being forced to go to school in masks. They're being. Uh, criticized and marginalized if they're the ones who didn't get vaccinated and there's the, the children again are suffering the uh, consequences of what adults 
what mistakes adults make. And because they can't speak up and, and um, demand rights for themselves or are afraid to or their parents are afraid to or whatever the reason is, unfortunately children, unborn children <laughs> and born children often bear the brunt of what ails society, what's going wrong with our culture. Well, a society that probably has learned not to care deeply for children. They become yeah. expendable. Uh, well, don't know. we know? We, we live in an anti-child culture. We do. And we, we mask that by pretending to be, to be making our children safe, by requiring car seats that expire, and by putting kids in helmets and, you know, all kinds of crazy safety gear, and yet we're okay with... 800,000 abortions uh, a year, I think yeah. we're at now at yeah. the minimum. Um, we're okay with some of our states, like where we are here in Illinois, having absolutely no protections for children at all, including for minority girls who get pregnant. Absolutely. So uh, One you know, only again. has to look at an agenda. And I, I think there was an agenda in this book, an agenda of saving money, cutting cutting corners, uh, not recognizing the trauma that kids, kids saw their classmates burned alive. They did. They saw their classmates burned alive. And parents saw their kids burned alive. And that anger that projected uh, really destroyed a neighborhood. And, yeah. and there was one scene that I find quite horrific and that was how they treated the families who tried to come and identify to see if their kids oh, were dead oh, yeah. at the morgue and the uh, it, it showed the ineptitude of political uh, appointments uh, for friendships rather than for the ability to run a department yeah, right. yeah. he had no idea how to handle the influx of dead children that came. Some burned beyond recognition, some perfectly okay with uh, just asphyxiated, and some with third degree burns over 80 and 90% of their body. And they they did not let the parents go down. They, they were, well, let's wrap this up. What did you think? Would you recommend this book? Uh, you know, I would recommend the book, but be prepared to be sad. You might shed a few tears if you read this book. But it's something to learn about, something to know about, because, you know, the, the tragedy was used to bring good. And maybe say a prayer for all those families, many of whom still have living members right. now, who need yeah. still need prayers because they Ab were touched. Absolutely. And let's pray that... We never have another Our Lady of the Angels like fire that would destroy everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Well, our next book will be about St. Joseph, so it'll be an upper rather yeah. than a... <laughs> he is the protector of families. Yes, so. he is. So we'll, we'll regale you with St. Joseph next time. Very good. Thanks, Bonnie. Mark your calendars for WSFI's second annual Fulton J. Sheen Award. 
Please join us at our fundraiser on Saturday, April 30, at the Lincolnshire Marriott Resort. Champagne and hors d'oeuvre reception is at 4.30 p.m. with dinner and program at 5.30 p.m. Our keynote speaker and award recipient is His Eminence Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, renowned worldwide as a faithful and stalwart defender of the faith. To sponsor this event or to obtain tickets, go to wsfiradio.org or call Angela at 224-206-8455. That's wsfiradio.org or Angela at 224-206-8455.